0: Tourism, and increasingly sophisticated by investment, is becoming Antigua's resource curse.
1: Hello podcast listeners and welcome back to Grassroots Radio. I'm your host, Danique Bird, and this week's episode promises to give you a lot to think about. This episode is also the start of something different here at Grassroots Radio. We have been promising slash threatening to mix up our format for quite a while now, and here we are, we're finally doing it. So from here on out, our episodes will be presented as thematic miniseries within the wider season. And we are diving right into the deep end, right at the beginning with our miniseries on sustainable development, which starts with this very episode featuring George Ann Mayan, who is an economist in training at Columbia University in the US. Next week to continue the series, we will be featuring Julio Camacho, who is a marine biologist. And then finally, in week three, we'll be rounding out the series with an interview with Colin Jenkins, who is an architect and project manager certified in green design principles. Other topics that we hope to do miniseries on in the future include Antigua's new cannabis laws and the industry that is starting to form and develop based on those recent changes. The entertainment industry in Antigua and Barbuda. And of course, tech entrepreneurship, startup culture, and futurism in the Caribbean. I hope you're excited as we are for all that great stuff ahead. If you have topics that you would love to see us cover, stay tuned at the end of the interview to find out how you can contact us and let us know what you're thinking and how you're feeling and what you'd like to see us do next. Thank you all so much for downloading, listening, and sharing this podcast. Your support literally means everything to myself and our entire team. And now, it is my absolute pleasure to present Georgianne Ryan. And as usual, I will let her tell you who she
0: is. My name is Georgianne Ryan. I am 23 years old, and I am presently a Master's of International Affairs candidate at Columbia University School of International Public Affairs, where I'm majoring in economic and political development and minoring in data analytics and quantitative analysis. Um, My background is variously um, in social and economic equity and public policy, um, specifically um, as a research assistant or research staff at various think tanks in New York and DC. Also, I'm I'm really into economic equity as it pertains to the access we have to research And so that's a big part of why I'm a founding member of the the City Collective, which aims to increase the visibility of Black women in economics.
1: Excellent. And what initially sparked your interest in economics and data? Why this field for you? So,
0: so, you know, like one of, like, so my father is George Ryan, who is a uh, businessman on the island. And he, um, before ABI went bust, he was a founding member who left because he was really like disenfranchised of how they're running the bank and he didn't think they are running it properly. And so he just like sold his card and left. Mm-hmm. And after ABI went bust, um, or ABI bank, uh, and was taken over by ECAB, uh, I got to meet the late, great Sir Dwight Benner, Um, mm-hmm. As he is, I was coming home from school and I was, I think I was in, I was at Christ the King and I was in third form or something. And I had taken I was taking economics for sort the of CXC class at that point, and I like just heard him talk to my dad. I was just, like in the background while they were speaking, and that was like, the first time it kind of dawned on me that what this man studied was money, but not just money, but sort of like how people get sick, money gets sick, and lack of money is the an illness, and lack of economic and political power is an illness that people and societies have, and so hearing him speak about how we can fix this bank for like the greater good and um, made me realize like what my dad does is not just business, it's like economics, it's like there's policy involvement. But also what this man was doing was finding a way to make sure that this bank survived and everyone's money was safe. But then at that point, it really dawned on me that this had a logical extreme and a practical purpose that went beyond like just drawing the man and supply curves. It was actually a science which could understand how the world worked and how to make it better.
1: That's really awesome. I love the uh, analogy of sickness. Like, just like people can get sick, economies, whole economies can get sick and monetary systems can get sick. And one of the concepts that you mentioned in this um, amazing paper that you wrote that I've been reading is the economic impossible trinity. Would you be able to say more about what that concept is and like how it affects our ability to make policy and the trade-offs that we're often looking at?
0: Yeah, so there is this uh, great uh, political scientist slash political economist um, called Danny Roderick, I think he's at Harvard right now, and one of his groundbreaking works was the idea of something called the inescapable trilemma of the American economy, which basically means that you have a political and economic trilemma where you can either have a combination of two of the three of the following, uh, deep economic integration, democratic politics, and a nation state. And what that necessarily means is that you can have either deep economic integration by globalism, like complete lack of economic borders when it comes to trade. You can Mm -hmm. have totally democratic policies, which means, you know, universal suffrage, representation, we can have a strong nation state, which is not a good or bad. It could be something that means like totalitarianism or whatever. It just means that, like, the, the nation state, the idea of the nation state is weakened because once you globalize, there's certain laws you have to compromise on. Like, take for example, the EU. Once you become member of the EU, you have to take EU standards for certain things okay. for vis-a-vis okay. your, like, domestic standards. If you choose a nation state and deep economic integration, you have what they call a golden straitjacket, which basically means that you have a strong nation state, you have a big degree of economic sovereignty to global institutions, so you have like big capital markets and economic integration, but then you also have a strong nation state, which means that you have a strong government, strong institutions. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have democratic politics. For example, the US, like you can say yes to great democracy, but the democracy has been weakened through like repeated efforts to demonize immigrants or disincentivize poor and minority voters. That's them retreating from like having democratic politics to going to the nation state. So if you have the nation state and democratic politics, you have what they call a Bretton Woods compromise. Which means instead of deep economic integration and globalism, you instead have a strong state with democratic politics. It's kind of like a post World War II idea of how can we be as inward as possible, and so you have like a fixed value of currency to the U.S. dollar, you have um, limited borrowing international institutions, and you have um, a large nation state, and that really was like the policy de jour from like the Second World War until the seventies, especially in the United States, was was like having like the deadly combination of inflation and recession. And with the free market, that became like not on vogue anymore. And so what we have now with the globalization and the technological bubble is the deep economic integration and democratic politics, which basically means your nation state is weakened, you forego a lot of your local domestic laws and in, in in lieu of national laws that are set by a a global body, so the World Trade Organization, the UN, trade agreements like the EU, and to some extent, CARICOM. You don't have like a strong nation state. You have free movement of people from your own goods and services, but you have deep economic integration and all of the benefits that hold, and democratic politics. Combinations of each come in on a roll with history, but as a nation state, you have to be careful of like, if I get too strong, I and mean, is have to forego democratic politics or economic integration. And what does that mean for my country, my government, and also ultimately my people and my policy?
1: So if I'm thinking about the Antiguan context, it seems like the economic integration is where they're really strong. And then the other two would seem to be weakened as, as maybe a result of that, given that we're an economy that's very much dependent, like 100 percent almost on... Um, other nations doing well in order for us to do well. For instance, if you think of tourism, um, unless there's a strong middle yeah. class that's got money to travel in other places, we don't have that income coming into our country. And then also, I mean, what else does Antigua do besides tourism? Any crop, Anything that we export on a very small scale is also very much dependent on bigger nations being able to purchase it.
0: Yeah, I think you can argue that Antigua, to some extent, is choosing what it wants. Because you do have, like, I don't know, I, I don't really know to what extent CARICOM, I don't think CARICOM is as strong as the EU when it comes to setting uh, national or uh, union wide directives when it comes to policy. Like, for example, if the EU says that you can't bring in chicken that has been treated in a certain way, that means, like, France, Britain, et cetera, has agreed altogether that they don't want have a specific law to allow something that undercuts another country. Mm-hmm. I don't think the CARICOM has like a, a treaty that goes that deep into law. And so I think with the Caribbean, it's a really weird test case where a lot of people say that it's kind of unknown, especially because we're such young democracies, whether or not we're choosing the golden straitjacket, which is deep economic integration in the state, or whether we're choosing global federalism which is deep economic integration, democratic politics. I think as we've seen with like recent like forays and decision for investment and how that's affected democracy, you can argue one or the other, but it's a little bit too easy to tell or too early to tell at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. And so the growing influence of China in the area, does that immediately strike you as pushing us more in one direction or another on that particular front?
0: So there's like this great book by this economist called Richard Bernal, he's a Jamaican economist. Um and he it's basically called a dragon in the Caribbean. It's a few years old now. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see like my thesis at Columbia is actually an effort to update a lot of his work. And he is not an economist in the empirical sense. He's more of like a class relations and theorist. And so I'm also adding empirical quantitative analysis to his thesis. Um but In his book, he does detail the relationship between Caribbean and China and has a lot of insight as to how it's evolved over the past 30 years. I think his book stops around 2015 or 2014. Um, But China is a country that does devalue democratic politics in exchange for having economic integration, especially in the last 20 years, and a a strong nation-state. And so they're like kind of like the classic example of a golden street jacket. Um, I think with, uh, Antigua and with broader Caribbean nations, what we have to be careful of is the extent to which if public opinion were to go against increased Chinese investment and for government officials, Chinese investment became increasingly profitable on a personal and on a countrywide basis in a way that's not a social benefit for the rest of the nation. To the extent to which we will be able to, ta- to take the same example and effectively sacrifice democratic politics in exchange for economic integration in the nation state uh, that hasn't been empirically proven that nations are doing it, but it has been a lot of anecdotal evidence and a lot of evidence to the extent of you know increased um, involvement by things like Cambridge Analytica in criminal elections or the impact to which a lot of Caribbean governments are turning away from levied taxation on their people, which is a big instrument of political accountability because if you think about it, when the money comes out of your pocket to fund your government, you care about where it goes.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And so when you're moving away from people-based taxation to more external revenues, such as specific by investment and Chinese investment, it does strike someone who's a political economy buff as concerning because... Then you you would need to ensure you have the political institutions to make sure that people don't succumb to corruption or succumb to the influences that a lack of accountability has and so I think it's and the Caribbean is, is a really young region i don't think we have any countries that are more than a hundred years old or eighty years old or seven years old with the exclusion of Haiti many um, even with haiti it's like it, it's independent, but like their monetary policy is tied up in different ways and so mm-hmm. There's no truly independent nation that has been independent for a long, long time that has had the time to build those institutions to hold governments accountable and we're quite small in and of itself and that kind of hampers that accountability building. And so it's a concern for someone who's into political economy and political theory as to how we'll be able to weather the storm of Chinese influence and to what extent we'll be able to keep ourselves throughout this investment.
1: And I mean, you're talking about uh, the impact that that could have on our democratic processes in terms of the money coming in from the outside and influencing how politicians make their decisions. But in a broader sense, um, one of the worries is full on like colonization is the word being thrown around where currently... um, I'm not sure what level of detail you're familiar with the YIDA Special Economic Zone that's now being set up in Antigua where it's essentially the policies around it instantiate a country within Antigua and Barbuda, which allows these Chinese entities, various businesses and I guess conglomerates both private and governmental because, you know, the lines are kind of blurred um, in the Chinese economy they have different laws within that zone than actually govern the rest of Antigua.
0: Yeah, and it's, I think it's interesting the extent to which Antigua compared to a lot of Caribbean islands have allowed that to mature. Um, like a lot of the data I found in my paper um, shows that actually some other Caribbean islands are are like moving away from Chinese investment. Antigua is actually one of the largest recipients of Chinese investment in the Caribbean at this point. And the extent to which we are doing so at the expense of a lot of other elements, we are a really small island. And so Mm -hmm. you have to take into account the extent to which that can affect our democracy, our economic mobility. Like there is a big short-term to long-term trade-off. And so I think the key to Antigua's economic success is not just depending on Chinese FDI, which is like, sure, it's a big, like, ingestion into our GDP calculation, but it's yet to be seen if it's actually a long-term benefit to our economy. Like, how many antigans are they hiring? And not just in field positions. You know, like, what is the extent to which antigans will be able to get investment from this? Is there just going to be another resort of which we, we don't really need many more of those? Yeah. We need to, like, diversify. And so it is a troubling development, especially when you take into account the, lack of nation state because that is intrinsically weakening Antigua's nation state. I don't know if colony is the right word to use for it in a classical sense, but it is a troubling development when you realize that, like, okay, so you're going to have this building or this, like, or this zone of Antigua that's going to be more or less inaccessible to Antiguans and going to be only for Chinese or other expats who are willing and able to buy condos or rent these apartments or use them as holidays. But what is the actual economic benefit for the country as a whole beyond initial investment? What is the multiplier effect? This one in particular
1: goes beyond a resort. It's also going they're planning to have various different industrial parks, medical centers. The licensing order gives them permission to set up their own customs and immigrations their own ports of entry, so they don't even have to come through the regular Antigua and Barbuda. And I think that's why it's sort of earning the title of colony, because it seems like a complete and separate economic entity within the nation of Antigua and Barbuda. So it is kind
0: of strange. China's policy with the and initiative is a mixture of checkbook diplomacy, dollarized dollar, dollar diplomacy, mm-hmm. basically saying, i want to support the one China initiative i don't want to support taiwan maybe even more so now hong kong Mm -hmm. and so i will give you foreign aid money that is technically unaccountable there's no like you must use it on xyz um in order to support this now with this development it's kind of like okay you have constructed buildings on a raised landscape it's like the Garchuan development, you have all of you're like sacrificing this ecologically pure land and then there's like offshore wealth management extents and you have like a university, hospital, school, bank. So it's kind of like who is this made for? It's not made for Antiguans, obviously. And so like the question is like why is this the only way that Antigua's government, regardless of who the government is, sees as a way to invest in the nation and why is it the only way they think of investing in nation? I can think of many ways that would be more sustainable long-term that wouldn't involve ecological costs and would involve more of local people and local accountability. To me, it's kind of like, okay, so this it's kind of ironic to me that the land went from like Alan Stanford to this development because it's mm-hmm. kind of like you went from like a, like just, one extreme to another, but it's sort of like okay, so you have a marine protected area, all of this being built, but it's like you're not weighing up the environmental harm or the economic fallout, and then you also have okay, enormous employment and economic opportunities. If the Antiguan companies that would be involved in this development are being heavily regulated, what is the guarantee? Is there a system that you say you have to? Have? X percentage of Antiguan businesses in this agreement? Is there like a system that you have to have X percentage of Antiguan builders? Is there a thing that say, like, hey, you have this manufacturing base, but while you manufacture? What percentage of what you're manufacturing is going to include Antiguan raw materials? We don't really know.
1: Yeah, there actually is no policy dictating like the businesses that will exist in the future within the zone. But the zone itself, part of the policy is that there is no stipulation on how much Antiguan labor has to be involved in the project. So that that's clearly just like, oh, there is no, the government is not gonna interfere in how you hire and who you hire. And on top of that, they have extra permission to bring in whoever they need to from outside. So that those are actually like parts of the policy.
0: Like the thing is like, there's a huge differences in economic development and just building a skyscraper thing, look at this shiny thing, You know, um, economic development is not a sexy business. It involves strategic investments in the people, in education, in businesses. Um, I would love to see um, the infrastructure there to have people able to have loans without collateral being needed so people that don't have family with land can get loans. Like it's some kind of credit source system that goes not to the extent that the U.S. one does, but a lot of business, like banks and Kiga are hesitant to give loans for businesses because mm-hmm. there's not that infrastructure there. You know, why don't we have, like, even little Montserrat has, like, if you want to mail something to someone's house, you have, like, this number on this street and this postcode. And Kiga, for the longest while, hasn't invested in these markers of economic development that would make us a much more, uh in an entrepreneurial way, competitive, but also intrinsically much more of a strong economy in of our in, in and of ourselves, but yet we are opening the doors to these individuals who are, in a lot of ways, taking advantage of our natural resources. I always keep the analogy, and I do in my new paper about the new resource curse and the extent to which oil is a resource curse. And you can see the parallels between all these oil-rich countries right, I going away Iran. from, yeah, going away from taxation and more to like revenues from oil sales, mm-hmm. um, and that means that, yeah, people are happy because not paying any taxes, and there's all these government services because it's being funded through, like, this resource. But then when the resource runs out, then should hits the fan. And so tourism, and increasingly, so this investment, is becoming Antigua's resource curse. And Chinese FBI is paying into that, and it's saying, okay, well, we are going to sell all these passports. You know, we already had a scare with the Canadian the king government rejiggering how we can move with free into to Canada, as like a knock on our passport rating.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what happens when a lot of other countries, what happens when it becomes as hard as it is for some of my friends who are from Pakistan to get an American visa as it is to get an Antiguan visa? What happens when an Antiguan passport becomes so quote-unquote worthless that we get to that point? Mm-hmm. Our resource will be exploited because we've overused it same with our land when we build on ecological reserves and we end up in a situation where we've been more susceptible to hurricanes or we like just build up this capacity of things we don't need, we will have in a sense exploited our resources and have nothing to show for it. And then in times of political arrest, we'll return to political violence so that people stay in power. That's a possibility or who we just say, okay, well, we made this decision, it was not sustainable, but vote for us anyway because we're not the other. And that's why it becomes even more important for people to vote consciously vote on policy instead of identity um, and also instead of voting for parity because of like some random affiliation think critically about what is this policy doing? What is the long-term gain for my country beyond five years? Mm-hmm. What is the extent to which politicians are benefit from this in a way that is immediately at a disadvantage to me as a citizen and think skeptically about policy when it's being put forward. There's no such thing as a free lunch. If you get some magical skyscraper, the money and the land has to come from somewhere.
1: Yep, yeah, so true. And I think a big part of the problem is a lack of critical literacy in our public when it comes to economic matters at all, because it's very easy for, you know, the prime minister or whoever to get up and give a budget speech, and they throw all these numbers out, and people are like, well, it sounds good to me, I guess we're doing great, and then they just go about their business, and there isn't really much of an understanding of what those numbers mean, or like to what degree they measure actual economic output, actual value created in the economy, and to what degree they're just, you know, kind
0: of fluff. Yeah, like I would love to see, for example, I heavily believe that I an mean, Indigenous government were to give the same tax waivers to local NTO businesses, and I mean local, I don't mean sandals. I mean local entrepreneurs mm-hmm. with young ideas, incentivizing them to hire people, plus strengthening our non existent safety net. That would do so many more wonders, much more sustainably than another hotel or this economic zone.
1: And just on the point of data, like I wanted to ask you what your experience was when you were writing this paper and trying to find like specific numbers out of Antigua because that's another thing that can often be difficult to just get the information clearly out of these government sources.
0: So I've I've written different iterations with paper over the years and each time I've run into a stalemate when it comes to finding data from Antigua. I've found more data on Antiguan FDI inflows, literally from the Chinese statistical handbook by mm-hmm. which I've like had friends of mine who are Chinese read and get the data for me oh, wow. than I have from Antiguan government.
2: And um, what kind of data what, were you
1: specifically looking for? And like, what, were, what would be the institutions that would normally house that
0: data? So when you look at things like World Economic Indicators, like FBI, so like the Chinese Chinese Physical Handbook actually has like all the FBI that Antigua has been getting from China going back to like 1998 on their website. Um, Things like um, Antigua's unemployment rate, like unemployment data for Antigua is hard to find. Yes, very it, much so. You don't really know how, you don't know how it's calculated,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: don't know it's, like, pretty much done with every census, to be honest. I've actually called the census Office and they've just said, like, this is the number we have. It's, like, five years old. That's what we have to do with it. And it's, like, how are we as a country going to make evidence-based policy solutions if we don't have the evidence? And in a lot of ways, you can say, maybe we don't have the expertise. I'm pretty sure we have people who want the college to do this stuff. They just mm-hmm. don't get the jobs that do it when they get back. And to some extent, you can argue that governments... Like, both old and new like the fact that people are in the dark because it holds them less accountable.
2: Yeah.
0: And so, on I'm, I've just given up on trying to use unemployment data. Um, the most reliable data I've found is from the IMF because, like, as a recipient of IMF loans, to some extent, you do have to give, um, IMF, the IMF, some data analysis on whether or not you've hit your goal. And so, that data has been really helpful, um, as is some World Bank indicators, but looking for things like, you know, immunization rates, HIV-AIDS, um, like the, the prevalence of HIV-AIDS, like these things that, you know, if you go to our Barbados statistical website, everything is there. It's way beautifully just accessible even Jamaica has more reliable data, and he goes, oh, Jamaica's big, they have more expertise, they have the university, but they have invested in it. Jamaica has, um, for whatever sins everyone else thinks it has caused, they have a cogent um, safety net system, and like, unconditional cash transfers, they are probably, um I have actually been in classes where we've studied in depth Jamaica's anti-poverty programs is like a pinnacle of forward-thinking policy. Mm-hmm. And so, Antigua's data data capacity is really lacking. And that's one thing I would love to be invested in, not even just for political reasons, but for social science, how are we gonna get actual policy if you don't know the problems in the first place?
1: Exactly. And even for things like public health, it goes beyond simply just the politics. You also talked a bit about China's interest in the region in terms of agriculture. And that's one of the the newer things that they're sort of investing in. So recently, I know they've given out a bunch of scholarships to various government workers. There's also, I think, another like thousand acre land deal where a lot of the government agricultural stations are now being turned over to... Chinese interest to run an experiment and also ostensibly to teach the Antiguan public more about various growing techniques. What's kind of creating China's
0: interest in agriculture in our region in particular? Well, China is a growing country, population wise and economic wise. It's an increasing middle class and upper class. And with that, becomes more demand. I think the agricultural investments have been more apparent in countries like Brazil and Africa just due to their share like um in major in Africa due to just their share landmass. But Antigua is unique and other small Caribbean countries are unique in the sense that like you do have, you know, things like our pineapple, which is seen as like a delicacy internationally and can be seen as something that is like a, a delicacy in China and it's just good to make sure that there's a uh a steady supply of, these, of like these kind of things that their people can shop. But it's also, um, it, it can be both that and then also the, the political and diplomatic piece. You know, the, the foreign agricultural investment um, that China does in other countries, the Latin American Korean piece is still quite small. The majority of it is in Asia. The vast majority of it, um, of what's left is actually in Europe, in Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. um, and then some in broader sort of like Africa and Oceania. And so like the Caribbean piece is still quite small, but it could do a lot with sort of like the more seen as luxury foodstuffs that we in the Caribbean probably take for granted, um, as well as more of the uh, checkbook diplomacy because the Chinese government um the way that the economy is structured is that they do have people who are expertise who have expertise in these things and it's good that they want to teach but a lot of it is soft diplomatic power in that it's slowly through you know colonialism is a rough tumble violent business this is more of like a soft way of saying yeah. okay you come and join me we're equal but soon soon before you know it we're not
1: mm-hmm. Well, because ultimately we get into these debt relationships, right, where we owe a lot to them and not so much the other way around.
0: Yeah, Um, like our exports to China are still minuscule compared to what they could be. And, I mean, it's because our bandwidth for providing exports is so little. If it really was about our economic mobility or economic growth, it would be investigate our export sectors. But it's not. It's still a balance of power between us and them. And so to think yeah. critically about, okay, we're getting this money, but it's actually going to be the things we need, the things we're going to need to survive and to grow.
1: Mm-hmm. And what can you say about Africa and the impact of Chinese foreign direct investment over there?
0: So, in Africa is interesting because it's not really a good, I guess you could say, counterfactual for Antigua. It's not a one to one comparison because a lot of agrarian right. countries are very nutrients rich with oil. And natural gas and uh, other natural resources. Yeah,
1: um,
0: but China is catching up and accumulating um, foreign direct investment into Africa to a level that is commensurate with sort of its economic size and long-term political ties. And because you have to understand that a lot of the Chinese investment has come into play when for both the Caribbean and for the African continent our relationship with the U.S. is becoming more fractured mm-hmm. as the relationship with our former colonial powers. So like France and the U.K. especially is becoming more inward. Um, and so a lot of this is using China, China's excess capacity because the thing is China is very big, but it's also very big in population. And it's running out of things to build. I have a friend who lives in Shanghai, and he often says, you know, he lives in this huge apartment building and they're building seven more apartment buildings around, the, around him. But he and maybe five other people live on his floor yeah. because they're just building, like their economy is built up by just government spending, spending, spending. And so they have all this excess capacity in engineering and construction transportation. And so a lot of the job, um, a lot of the Chinese FDI into Africa through so this kind of like, Greenfield investment in manufacturing is not really going to workers so much as going to sending Chinese workers to Africa, which is the thing that's happening in India. Yeah. And it's actually, like the, the research actually says, it's creating fewer jobs per unit of investment on average than if it was a local investor. And so the FDI is welcome, but It's nature will need to change to be sustainable and create more jobs. And you just move from focusing on investment in natural resources and infrastructure to manufacturing, which is more labor intensive. But the question is, will that labor come from the African continent or will it come from China? And that's the same thing we're looking for in Antigua. So a lot of the, um, uh, I'm not like a huge reader of a lot of the data when it comes to African Chinese investment, But some of the papers I have cited and have looked at it, there's actually been a lot of articles in the recent years by um, uh, the Financial Times that said, you know, you want to build these great things who are huge, but what is the real impact, you know? Like a lot of the people who are coming to build in Africa are actually having fortunes much larger of what you would in China today, but the same benefits not being given to African people.
1: It's a complicated situation. Could you kind of walk us through what would be some of your big general recommendations, like if you had decision-making power within um, some of these issues, what would be your recommendations as to how Antigua and the region can better position themselves to, to benefit more from these foreign direct investments instead of sort of being more of a pawn in the situation or just a passive recipient of it and then not really um, taking the time to structure it properly in order to create benefit for the wider population.
0: I would first say to recognize that our bargaining power with China is quite split economic power to landmass to population however you want to cut it we're a small country and until we as a Caribbean region stop with sort of like this intercompetitiveness and fighting and come as a united voice we will not be able to have any bargaining power against China. Second of all I would love to say why are we having these clauses not even with just with China but just with like U.S. and U.K. financiering as a whole, that basically gives them better perks and rights than local investors who are more likely to keep that money in the local economy, causing a multiplier effect. Because there are many investors in Antigua who, sure, they're here, they create jobs, but you know if that, like, it was a local Antiguan businessman and he was paying people the same government would immediately make a demon out of them and so we need to like think clearly about the double standards we're giving to foreign investors who keep a lot of that money abroad um and local business people i would then say you know these clauses that we have in our contracts with china in particular why is it that we're not telling them you have to hire more local locally why is it you're telling that when why don't you have expiration dates they can have your workers here, but they have to go back to China unless they go through the same immigration system so that we have Jamaicans, Chinese, everybody else go through. Um, why is it that we gave these special treatment to people when like you know we don't give that same to our quemy brothers and sisters mm-hmm. so the like the labor impact is a huge thing because you need to understand that. Unless they're creating jobs in Antigua and jobs with upper mobility, like right now in Africa, in some countries, especially in like Nigeria, the manufacturing and the construction industry, you have to know Mandarin to get into some of these industries. Right. It's gotten to the point where those industries are completely overtaken by Chinese nationals, and it's not like a xenophobic thing. It's just literally like, what have you done to your local economy? In such a way that if you were a local person born of that soil wants to get into the industry, you have to learn another language to do that.
1: There is this idea I mentioned earlier: so the lack of critical literacy around economics for the Antiguan public and it's probably true for the rest of the region as well where we have a couple of measures that we're all kind of dependent on. We know how much like the growth rate of your economy whether it's three percent or seven percent. Recently in Antigua there's been some controversy about what the actual number is because the government's saying one thing and then the international statistics are saying a different thing. What do you think or are you familiar with alternatives to the GDP, such as the genuine progress index or the gross national happiness index? And do you think that if Antigua or the region were to adopt different ways of measuring their actual economic productivity or just their general overall national productivity in different ways, do you think that could help us see some of these issues that we're talking about more clearly or um, kind of highlight different Solutions that we may be overlooking right
0: now. Yeah, so I would first say that the way the GDP is formulated, this is mm-hmm. really easy to break. So GDP is basically government spending plus consumption plus investment plus net exports, on like a like on the simplest mm-hmm. simplest basis of aggregate demand. So what it basically is is how much do you as a nation? Um, devoid of controlling externalities, produce or consume. It is a very simple measurement that doesn't take into account, for example, the ecological costs of such production Mm -hmm. or things like inequality or social um social benefits. Is it probably the best like indicator we have just based on its ubiquity and it's easiest to measure? Sure. But there are a lot of economists have actually been experimenting with ways to have sort of like a little asterisk on the GDP, basically saying, like, GDP in context of everything else. So I'm look at the with Happiness Index and other things. I think a really good measure of economic um, prosperity is inequality. You know, inequality, there's actually a paper by this economist called Lawrence Summers, where he basically outlines what are the things that, um, like, you know, like, when you look at the global financial crisis, you talk about a lost decade of economic growth. What are the things that make GDP grow or go down? And a big part of it is inequality. When you have an unequal society, people with the highest propensity to spend, i.e. the middle class and poor, don't have the money they need to spend to put forward the economy. Um, a big part of it is also, like you want something to take, it, take into account inequality, but also global warming. If you have a GDP that's growing 10% a year, but then you are engaging in an industry that's ecologically uh-huh. um, destructive, like awful, then it's great if you have a GDP of $10 million and you have like a scorched earth and no one to enjoy it. Then what does that signify mean? It's just like vast productivity, um, but no benefit. And so a lot of economists have been experimenting with ways to use GDP but have an asterisk that accounts for um, inequality, like GDP minus the inequality indicator, plus an externalities indicator to look at global warming. Um, maybe even accounting for things like um, social welfare, like you have a high GDP but where does that money go? Are you like the US that funnels it into military spending or are you more kind of like a France or Canada that aims to um, increase your social safety net within reason to make sure that even the poorest among you have um, some sort of um, prosperity. There's actually um, a political theorist and economist from way back when, actually, I actually forgot his name, but he had this idea of um, if like a good way to measure an economy success is if you just have to be blindly drops in this economy would you like to do that like for example Hmm. if you were in the u.s there are pretty distinct disadvantages to being poor black from a certain part of the country Hmm. and so to what extent would you like to hedge your bets basically instead of judging in gdp why don't we judge by the extent to which you'd be willing to be a random person drops in this economy. Because that really tests you to see okay, am I really treating the weakest and most vulnerable among us with enough respect that, like, is it like Scandinavia? Where it's like, sure, I'm pretty sure being the most random person in Scandinavia because of the robust healthcare and mm-hmm. social welfare system is better than having to take that chance in the, U- in the US. Right. And those are like a lot of different ways that economists and theorists and philosophers have actually thought about looking at world economic progress and in the context of things that matter on the day-to-day.
1: Just uh, so while we're talking on that, I mean, you have made the decision to live outside of Antigua. Is that a permanent choice or do you think that one day you might want to move back?
0: I'm actually make, I made the decision to move back to Antigua next year. Um, oh. I finished my... I'm finishing my master's degree from Columbia. Um, I'm basically doing the insane decision of doing two master's degrees at once, which is one that's a master's in international affairs and one that's a master's of arts in quantitative methods and data science. Um, Mm -hmm. And so with that, I was thinking, okay, if I do want to go for PhD, I can do it at UE. It's not a big deal. But um, I am like really excited and planning towards coming back to the Caribbean towards the end of next year.
1: That's amazing. I hope it goes really well. And so what are your ultimate goals? I mean, if you're moving back and you want to live and work in Antigua, um, what specifically do you envision yourself doing for work while you're there? Would you try to, I don't know, work with the government in terms of policy or do you want to do something else?
0: Yeah, so I've actually been thinking about this a lot in terms of how, I, how can I best catalyze all of my best work experience, my education, and the experiences I've had along the way. I've had I've had an amazing um, career in the U.S., and that's kind of why I feel, like, ready enough to move away. Like, I've, I spent a year working with one of the co-founders of Facebook on, on, on anti-poverty policy and... Um, also spent time at the Federal Reserve and time at Brookings Institution, which is like one of the best think tanks in the world looking at policy and anti-poverty programs. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really excited to galvanize all of my past experiences into an entity that kind of um, marries a lot of what I want to do, namely government accountability, research, um, uh, strategic venture capital investment, looking at how ways in which I can inject funds into um, local entrepreneurs in a way that is not exploitative, and, um, but also holding them accountable in a way that is profitable for themselves and sustainable for whatever entity I aim to begin. And so I'm really excited to explore that as a return to Antigua and also look at the co- corporate social responsibility aspect. You know? mm-hmm. If you have someone at the hotel and they give you $100,000 for a football team, that's great. It's amazing. But is it really holding them accountable? Because, you know, like Jeff Bezos just gave $98 million to um, charity. But it's like, okay, he gave it to affordable housing policy, I think, in Seattle, which is where Amazon's been getting a lot of flack, so right. where there's a lack of progressivity on that issue. But to Jeff Bezos, hundred like $100 million? To Jeff Bezos is what $45 to someone making $50,000 a year. Yeah, Amazon also That's
1: pays taxes back. anywhere.
0: Exactly. And so a lot of us have been bamboozled into thinking that philanthropy is a good substitute for accountable taxation. And right. so looking at um, how can we instill in companies and organizations a way to sort of like reshape themselves and be able to hire more Antigans at not just the storefront level, but the managerial give a way for us to have a blue-color to white-color pipeline, a way for us to give jobs to Antigans who go away for school and are struggling to find jobs that pay them adequately, but also utilize mm-hmm. their skills and expertise. Yeah. Um, I met when I was in Antigua last time, I met a young man who saw my Columbia backpack, and he said, I'm to Columbia." I'm like that's amazing are you traveling he's like no i'm just working he has a master's degree from columbia's school of urban planning he's working in the airport in duty free there's no shame in that but it's like you can mm-hmm. use your skills you know how much of antigua needs a parking lot like do you know there how much of antigua much needs of like happened. like do you know there's so- how much of antigua needs actual zoning laws looking at you know if they actually have someone like him, when the government is trying to do this thing with Alley and help to on it, someone like him who went to school for this is much better suited than someone who just has an idea for political ends. And so thinking critically about what I can do using whatever relative privilege I have to try to find um, corporate social responsibility, policy, and other solutions to help with the longevity of Antigua. Because I, do, I don't believe Antigua is a lost cause. A lot of my friends who have to stay up here do. Um, but I think it, just, it will just take a generation with new ideas, informed and applied and adopted from what they've learned and experienced abroad. But also an understanding that we do have that expertise back home. We do have the skills and the knowledge. We're just not utilizing them properly. And whether that be on purpose, or by accident, it is an economic cost that we will bear for future if we don't rectify it.
1: I don't know. I every time I hear the question like where is it coming from? Is it intentional or is it accidental? And I just can't help but thinking like it's intentional that all this cannot have happened by accident. And on some level there is a lack of political will to integrate, you know, the um, local Antigans into the economy in any sort of meaningful way, because then they're going to start to see what's been the status quo for a long time as unacceptable. And then the people who have benefited and built their entire lives and their careers and their empires on that status quo are not very entertained by the idea that it
0: could all just go away. Like, so, like for example, so like, my, I, like my dad, like uh, Sir George Ryan, I always have this conversation with him every night and I say, OK, I'm coming back home. And does that make me crazy? And he always says, you know, for him, he could have, you know, made his doubloons and skipped years ago. Mm -hmm. But he didn't. He just decided, okay, well, like, every single business he has has Antigua in its title. He's kind of like, I'm here, and I'm going to stay. And for, I feel like for his passion for the country and belief that, you know, it could be the best place in the world if it tried... And I think that's where NTVs have to come into play because we can't keep like the definition of is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results.
1: Mm-hmm. We
0: can't vote for the same people over and over and over again and be surprised when it doesn't change. We can't have young people who are in like Senate or in other offices who are giving us progressive ideas saying, you know, why are we still arguing about whether or not the anti-Belgary laws should stay? Like, it's a human right and who cares? We as Indians have a lot to do, and a lot of growing up to do when it comes to saying, okay, what are the petty arguments that the powers that be want us to have that keep us distracted and keep us complacent and keep us willing to accept this at its just for lip service to other things? And what can we prioritize as a nation I want to see more young people in office, more young people working in ministries at high levels who are qualified. I no longer want to see someone who's been working for 50 years and has no experience other than working in that place. Tell someone who's been abroad, made their name where oftentimes the standards are a bit higher mm-hmm. that they're a little child and just do, do what they say to do. And I think that if we make those changes, which if more people come back from abroad, I think it's possible because we are a critical mass. Um, and like one person helps, but two helps more and three helps even more. Then that change can happen, but it just takes time and investment and patience.
1: So for anyone who is listening to this and would like to follow you online and stay up to date with all the work that you're doing, what would be the best place for them to find you?
0: Yeah, Um so I'm um, really simple, all of my social media handles, Facebook uh I actually don't really have like a Facebook that's public, but uh all of my social media handles, Twitter, Instagram is just George and J Ryan. Um just at George and J Ryan. You can follow the Sadie Collective's work at at the Sadie Collective or at Sadie Collective. Um and yeah, I think I'd also say if any MT is interested in like economics or public policy careers, or how to utilize a law degree for public policy or just figuring out like you did econ txc i want to take it further like please do feel free to reach out to me via my website which is georgianjryan.com or via social media
1: thank you so much georgian i wish you all the best in your future endeavors and a pleasant evening
0: yeah
2: thanks for having me you for listening to this episode of grassroots radio if you enjoyed the conversation show some love and help spread the word you can do that by subscribing on apple google youtube spotify or wherever you get your podcasts already subscribed consider leaving a five star review it helps other people find the show If you have an idea for someone you want to see featured, or a topic you want us to cover, let us know. DM us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at grassrootsanu, or email us at thenewgrassroots at gmail.com. For more about NGR, visit us at thenewgrassroots.com. Until next time, this is grassroots radio.